0: Let me be another uh, face and person to welcome you here to Liberty Church. Uh, the summer brings with us some new rhythms for, for probably all of us, um, and, and many people that are not here that are usually here, and maybe some of you are here uh, when you're not usually here because you're visiting friends or family, you're in the area uh, for one reason or another. So if you are visiting with us, uh, again, welcome to, to Liberty Church this morning. Um, we've been spending most of our summer teaching through our doctrinal and confessional statement uh, this is 13 distinctives of the Christian faith to which we here at Liberty Church ascribe. And so we're working through that series this summer, um, not staying in just one portion of Scripture, one book at a time, and going line by line through that book as we may in other times of the year. Instead, we're, we're kind of jumping around um, through Scripture and supporting the statements uh, that we as a church would ascribe to and say that, we're belie- that we believe. So we're going to continue that Today, this is this is helpful to know. Um, We're not alone in believing these distinctives. Um, They themselves are provided to us uh, by the Gospel Coalition, and many of you will be familiar who the Gospel Coalition, Coalition is. But this is good to know, we don't ascribe to these because they're from the Gospel Coalition, uh, rather because they are historical and orthodox beliefs held throughout church history and made known by Scripture itself, which is why we jump around throughout, through Scripture when talking about the confessions uh, that we ascribe to. The Gospel Coalition just did a really good job of writing them out in a succinct fashion for us to say, yes, we believe these 13 things. As well. So we're going to continue that today. We've heard about the triune God. We're early in these 13 distinctions. We've heard about the triune God, the revelation of God, the creation of humanity, and last week, the fall. And so we continue today with the plan of God. In 2013, the Philadelphia 76ers of the NBA hired Sam Hinkie to be their general manager. Okay, so follow with me here if you're unfamiliar. The National Basketball Association, the NBA Professional Basketball, um, they, he, they hired Sam Hinkie to be their general manager, and he devised a plan that would be popularized by the term tanking. Okay, now tanking to tank is not a new thing in and of itself. When you think about something failing, that plan really failed, that tanked. You know, or something I did that project, it failed, it tanked, right? We would say that before, but this is like an action verb, okay? This is plain for all to see and know, and it was somewhat unprecedented in professional sports for a team to say, yeah, we're tanking, we're losing kind of on purpose, okay? And here's what that is, not necessarily trying to lose, but certainly not trying to win. This is what he was leading with the organization here in Philadelphia, all right? He was trading away assets, to recoup cap space, assets are the players themselves, national basketball association players, professional players. He's trading away the ones that are expensive to pay, high salary year to year, to kind of say, well, we can trade away one of them and get three okay players in return and instead pay them less money, and then we have more money to spend in the future on other players. By losing, they were securing high draft picks with the hope of finding affordable and controllable stars because when you lose, the teams that lose the most by the way, the draft is set up, they draft first. So the losing teams get to pick the best players that are coming in from college and high school first. So this plan, again, somewhat unprecedented for a team to say, yeah, we're tanking so that we can actually take advantage of the system here. This is what it led to in an 82-game regular season. In 2014, Sam Hinkie's first season with the franchise, the Sixers had 14 wins. Again, if you were 500, you won 41 games. They won 19. Okay, In 2015, they won 18 games, one less. In 2016, they won 10 games. 10 games. 10 and 72 was their record. There's been teams in the NBA that have won 72 games or 73 games in a season. They lost 72 games. They also tied the record for most consecutive losses, 26 in 2014. There's a lot of suffering going on for Sixers fans, 26 straight losses. So the result of all this commitment to tanking, the Sixers actually accomplished what they were looking to do they got high draft picks. Picks one and two in the draft, multiple years in a row, picking the, the best players, supposedly. And now it's resulted in, the most recently, the last couple of years, deep playoff runs. Because their team, they have better players. They would have drafted better players and build them up and then spend money on free agents to bring them in and kind of c- continue to build what they've been dr- building through the draft. So deep playoff runs. Not as deep as some of you would hope. A rejuvenated fan base, though. Many of you here in the room, Sixers fans, and certainly relevance right? Also a new phrase to our lexicon, trust the process, okay? So if you're sitting here going, trust the process, I've been hearing that everywhere in the state of Pennsylvania for the last couple years, this is why, because the Sixers are all about trusting the process. But here's the bottom line, regardless of the criticism of tanking, because some would say, wow, it's not really great to to lose on purpose or have a plan that that is on purposely trying to lose or not win. And believe me, okay, as a Knicks fan, I'm kind of okay with that plan. At least the Sixers have a plan. The Knicks don't really even have a plan. We just lose, and we'll just figure it out, I guess, afterwards. That's, that's our plan. <laughs> Truly, life is better with plans. Life is better with plans. And yet, here's what we need to see. Casey alluded to this in the liturgy this morning. The plans that we make are contingent on our ability to bring them about. And much of this is outside of our control. When any of us make plans, we do so with a limited capacity to make it happen. This is evidenced by those moments when we miss a flight, or we get a flat tire, or we lose a job, or we offend a friend, or wound a spouse, or become estranged from a parent, or bury a loved one. We may believe that these things can happen, but none of us desires for them to happen, and let alone plans that they would happen they're almost always the interference of other plans. We can plan all we want, but don't we find that our plans are very much outside of our control? Even Sam Hinckley, right, the GM of the Sixers, he was fired before the plan be able to come to fruition because they, just get, they lost patience. They said, your plan's a bad plan. He got fired. I bet he didn't see that coming. In contrast, hear this, a big point for us today. God, in his sovereignty, fulfills his plan by his own power, And in his own time, there is nothing upon which God's plan is contingent because he causes all things to be and all things to happen. Let us remember that as we explore what the plan of God is. So with that also, turn with me to our scripture for today, Galatians chapter 4. This is page 974 in the the Bibles that are in the the chair backs in front of you, page 974. You can see in our bulletin today, if you picked one of those up, we're focusing on chapter 4 verses 4 through 7. I'm actually going to start reading a little bit before that in Galatians 3.23, which I think is right at the top of page 974. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Again, that's verse 23 of chapter 3, now verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized in Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are in Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son and heir through God. Here we read of God's plan to redeem His people. Let us pray that God would instruct us by His word today. Please bow your heads as I pray for us. God, by your word, you created the world, and you created man and woman in your image. You demonstrate your power in the works of your hand, and by your word, you have declared freedom for all peoples from the curse of sin and death. Grant us wisdom today, behold you as God and to cherish our redemption. Amen. Keep your Bibles open as we continue to talk through this today and our continuation of studying through this doctrinal and confessional statement, those 13 points we come to the plan of God, as I've said, it's a good place to come to, especially as last week Pastor John taught on the fall. In our confession, if you're with us there last week or have read this, you would recognize this in the confession there it reads about the fall. All human beings are alienated from God, corrupted in every aspect of their being, physically, mentally, volitionally, emotionally, spiritually, and condemned finally and irrevocably to death, apart from God's own gracious intervention. This rings of Ephesians 2, that were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, without, without, without hope, having no hope, and without God in the world. That's where the fall leaves us. Now, a ray of hope does stand, even in the confession we read last week, at the end, apart from God's own gracious intervention. And glory be to God, he does intervene with his plan. Here it is. This is the confession for this week that we ascribe to. We believe that from all eternity, God determined in his grace to save a great multitude of guilty sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation, and to this end foreknew them and chose them. We believe that God justifies and sanctifies those who by grace have faith in Jesus, and that He will one day glorify them all to the praise of His glorious grace. In love, God commands and implores all people to repent and believe, having set His saving love on those He has chosen and having ordained Christ to be the Redeemer. That is the plan of God. So with our remaining time today, look more closely at this plan. We won't plumb the depths of God's plan. Like the gospel itself, the plan of God, very, very tied together there, right? Isn't the plan and the gospel, they, they just intersect in really, really significant, important ways. It is like a diamond. You've heard us here at Liberty maybe describe the, the gospel as a diamond in the past where you can look at it from every different angle and appreciate it in what seems to be a new way. The plan of God is like that. So today, we're not going to plumb those depths, but instead, we're going to focus on three things, and the Galatians is going to help us focus on that. Three things, God promises, God fulfills the promises, and God makes it possible for us to receive the promises. Those are the three things we're going to focus on today. So first, God promises. Look again at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, and I'm actually going to turn these out of order Right so reading verse 4 but the fullness of God had when the fullness of God had come God sent forth his son born of woman born under the law here verse 5 why to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons the promise to us is that God will redeem his people redeem those under the law that is the purpose of the plan Colin Smith writing for the Gospel Coalition identifies redemption that we're identifying now in the promises of God and taking that maybe plumbing the depths approach, looking at all the angles of the diamond of the plan. He lists these as the promises of God. We won't get into all of these today. He says the promises of God are creation in the image of God, destruction of evil, election for a blessing, redemption into reconciliation, dominion of an everlasting kingdom, correction. Into obedience and restoration into new life. There's a lot there, right? We won't get to all of that today. For us, briefly in focus through Galatians 4, God's promises of destruction and redemption. As we heard in our confession on the fall, in our sin, we are condemned finally and irrevocably to death. Destruction starts there with us in our condemnation. The condemnation of sin is full, it is whole, it is final. It is striking. There's no going back without hope and without God in the world. Remember that? The show is over. The feeling should feel like a deep pit within us when we think about how lost we are and without hope, as much of without hope we are. This to me, when reading this, I think of myself as a young child. My wife would say, a young child, aren't you still like this? You know, when the Yankees are in the postseason, the final I was caught, and they're not the team advancing, and I'm just like, Is it really over? It's over. There's like something that wells up in me there, even at the age of 35. Think about in movies and cinema, okay? We've seen this recently if you're into these movies. Thanos snapping his finger, right? And vanishing into thin air with no one able to do anything about it. It's over, okay? These are somewhat tongue-in-cheek, right? Because even more so, it's real pain and real grief. Death as the penalty of sin is weighty. Let's make sure we sit in that and recognize that. Pulitzer Prize winning author Ernest Becker wrote a half century ago that the fear of death haunts humanity like nothing else. The fear of our death, the fear of the death of a child, of a loved one, apart from God, and sometimes even with God, it haunts us. Who in thinking of themselves dying thinks less of the time they have Or who in thinking of someone they love dying thinks, I need to spend less time with that person. Instead, aren't we prone to say, no death, not yet. We're not ready for that because we recognize the finality of death. It is harsh, it is cold, it is destructive. It causes us to cry out like Job did. You, God, turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Feel this weight of death. And celebrate that this is what God promises to do to Satan and to evil and the curse of death itself with his plan. In Genesis 3, God says to the serpent, Cursed are you. The offspring of a woman will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There's nothing gentle in God's message to Satan. This is a vengeful God, and he will seek the redemption of his people. In essence, God says, who you are and what you have done will be destroyed forever. This is the promise of the destruction of evil. And be encouraged and combat the fear that haunts us. God will destroy sin and death. The second promise for us to focus on today is that of redemption. Galatians 4 uses the word "redeem" to show that God has reclaimed us from the law of sin and death and made us his children. And what makes this a survey right now, not a 10-part series in and of itself, okay, is what we know and believe about the reclamation, about this redemption, is that it was done by the sacrifice that God provides. As outlined in our confession on the fall, these confessions, they just run into each other. We can't avoid talking about some of them, multiple of them at one time. In our confession of the fall, we are condemned finally and irrevocably to death apart from God's gracious, gracious intervention. And praise God, he is the only one who can intervene. The whole of the Old Testament is a story of God at the appointed time redeeming his people because they cannot redeem themselves, including the ultimate nation-defining moment, perhaps, of God providing the sacrifice and redeeming Israel from Egypt. We read in Exodus 3, God acted to redeem. He said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, so I have come down to rescue them. What a foreshadow that is of the new covenant, too. Fast forward in the Old Testament, God redeems them so he can say to them in Leviticus, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. God is making his plan come about so that he can have relationship with his people and they can be in his presence. The promise of redemption is that God reconciles his people, we sinners, to himself. So that's our first point, that in his plan, God promises the destruction of sin, death, and the curse. And he promises the redemption of his people. Our second point, God makes these promises, but now our second point, God fulfills these promises. Look again at Galatians chapter 4, and now jumping back, right, to verse 4 where we started. How does God fulfill his promise? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law. Colin Smith, again writing for the Gospel Coalition, identifies this among the fulfillments of God to achieve the promises of God. These fulfillments of the promise, Colin Smith says, are the incarnation of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, the rejection of Jesus, the transfiguration of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus, and the ascension of Jesus. We're not in the fulfillment of the plan. Okay, We won't get deep into all these fulfillments, but in focus of us today is the one thing that we come to see of how God fulfills his promise, it's Jesus. It's not us. We do nothing as part to fulfill this plan. If we miss the significance of Jesus, we will miss God fulfilling his promises to destroy sin and death and to redeem his people. Without Jesus, there is no fulfillment. We're back to having no hope and without God in the world but that's not the case. We do have hope and we do have God in the world because Jesus is not a biblical hero like Abraham, Moses, David, or Elijah, the Bible teaches us this, and he's not a hero like those in our day who maybe would ascend into power or prominence and by their title or their achievements, we may believe they're better off than we are. How many of us walk around just going, that person has a better life. It's going better for them. It's gonna finish better for them. No, that's not true. Death is the great equalizer, right? We've talked about that already. We all know it, okay? And the only way to defeat death, as we've seen the promise of God, is that he would do that. Jesus is the God-man. He is the son of God, sent by God, who is God. He was sent to be, as Galatians tells us, the fulfilled seed of the woman. And under the same penalty, the law assigned to the man and woman, the same law that we are under. Jesus is Holy by nature. We are not. He belongs to heaven by right right of his sonship. He is tempted in human form, but never sinning. He's anointed by the spirit, but rejected by the world. He hung on a cross to carry our sins into his death, so that, as Colin Smith puts it, we may never know what it's like to die a sin-bearing death. We'll know death, but not a sin-bearing death. Christ is also resurrected so that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be, will be preached in his name, no one else's name, no one else fulfilled this, his name to all nations. The promise of God is so big, only he can fulfill it. And he does, because his plans are not contingent on anything like ours. Instead, in his sovereignty, God brings about his plan by his own power and in his own time. Think of the blind man in John 9. The man born blind, healed by Jesus, says to the Pharisees who are questioning him, and they're very skeptical, they want to undermine Jesus. What does the blind man say? Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Jesus was from God. He came to do everything promised by God. He is the fulfillment of God's promises. And that brings us to see our third point, that God makes it possible for us to receive these promises. In Galatians 4, 4 through 7, look at verses 6 to the end, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Again, Colin Smith, he keeps giving us long lists. He lists the received promises delivered to Christians, and it's noteworthy that in light of the gospel, we see this list with more specificity than ever before. The promises of God and the fulfillments of God by Jesus, through Jesus, has precise, very precise, and also very complete implications for the Christian elect. So this is how we experience the promises of God delivered to us. Regeneration into new life. Union with Christ. Justification in righteousness, adoption as an heir, sanctification to holiness, glorification into Christ's reflection, and consummation of seeing God. These promises received for us are deep, and they're rich, and we're going to cherish them as Christians, and we're never going to stop learning about them and appreciating them and marveling at their greatness. For today, for a few moments, a focus on the adoption of God, adoption by God, listed there in how we receive and experience the promises as Galatians 4 emphasizes this for us. And about this adoption, there is both a legal and a relational component to this adoption that should mark the joy and satisfaction of the Christian. Our legal adoption that we experience by God was secured by Jesus In the great exchange of our sin for his righteousness. God's justice is satisfied and now we are safely in the family of God. A chapter earlier in Galatians, Galatians 3, but even earlier than we started reading, we started reading 23, before that, it says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, there's the exchange, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We are legally sons and daughters of God when the Spirit comes to us. Christ died for us because we are sons and daughters. Think of in Luke 15, the prodigal son. When he left, he was no less a son of his father when he was away. And the father himself celebrated this by saying upon his return, bring the robe, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, kill the fattened calf, let's celebrate, for my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. He doesn't say This man became someone I don't know, and now he's back. Oh, he's my son. It was his son even when he was away. Similarly, Galatians 4 says, Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. God's chosen people are sons and daughters. Jesus secures their legal adoption through his death on the cross. And our response of calling God Abba, Father, reveals the relational depth that we have with God as his child. There is nothing about our adoption that is a logistic. There is nothing about that's a pragmatic achievement or an accumulation of assets. All right, think of, if you will, Miss Hannigan in the movie Annie from the early 1980s. Okay? A cold, emotionally shallow owner of an orphanage in New York City that only wanted the children to clean the building and then stay quiet. That's not how we enter God's house. No, the Spirit enables us to be embraced as family, to call God literally Daddy with emotion, but not cheesy or cheap, not indifferent. Instead, with conviction, with belief, with assurance, and pride in knowing that we have comfort in the love of God who is our personal father. When there is relationship, nothing needs to remind a child of who their father is. Think of those videos that maybe all of us have seen of a parent returning home from military service and their child seeing them for the first time. They run to their parent. They run to their father. They don't pause. They don't question who their father is. Rather, the child is wrapped completely in the love of their father. In adoption, we have relationship restored in which God embraces us. This is what the Spirit delivers. So in God's plan, he promises, he fulfills his promises, and he delivers those promises to us by the Spirit. So now what? right, a brief encouragement to trust God. In our lives, we're still battling sin and sometimes forgetting or not believing that Jesus really did make a difference. And we don't always feel the harmony of relationship with God, like that child who runs to their parent when they come home from service. We don't always feel, right, that harmony. Sometimes in relationship on this side of death, familiarity even breeds contempt. My children don't always run to me Right? And they don't always run to you, fathers and mothers. I know that to be true, especially when they're in trouble or when they're about to be disciplined. Not only that, our children and we all, all of us, live with shame and guilt and fear and anger. Sometimes we don't even know why or why it's stirring up within us. And sometimes a desire to do what we want regardless of knowing what God our Father wants from us and for us. Sometimes the experiences and feelings of this life make it seem like we are just spending the days cleaning the orphanage and having to stay quiet about all that is happening around us. So what do we do? There's so much that could be said here, so please know that this is not meant to be an easy button, right, not easy button, to every aspect of your life or mine. Please hear that. But also, insofar as today we're focusing on the plan of God, hear this and let this be a simple, and complex application for us today. And then let us sort it out more, okay, in life with each other under the love and authority of God. And I mean that. Let us be a church that's marked by our pursuit of one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can come to understand what this means for our years and our months and our days, our weeks and our days and our hours and even our minutes on this earth. as we clearly see the plan of God, here's what we must do. Here's the encouragement. We must believe in God and trust him. Simple and complex. Why? Because he's the only one who by his sovereignty can fulfill his plan by his own power and in his own time. Not only that, he did fulfill it. He sent Jesus, his son, who is fully man and fully God, to fulfill his plan. And then he sent the Spirit to us to help make it possible for us to believe and to secure our new life both now and forevermore. Let us not listen to the advice of Job's wife, who amid tragedy after tragedy told Job to curse God and die. One of my favorite theologian, apologist, Ravi Zacharias, he described that advice as being told to put on a boot first before you kick a steel drum, right? as if that's going to help. The steel drum is still going to win that battle regardless of whether you're wearing a shoe or not. We can't say, you are God, and so we're going to curse you. What good did that do for us? Nothing. No good. Okay? Instead, hear Jesus himself say all of the encouragement we've heard today, himself by his own words in John chapter 14, speaking to his disciples and bringing full of the truth that Paul later wrote for us in Galatians. In in verses 18 and 19, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. Because Jesus lives as the fulfillment, we also live. That was the promise. And we live not as orphans, but as members of God's family, because the Spirit makes it so. This is the plan of God, and it is accomplished. Let us pray. God, you make the sun to rise each morning and to set each evening. You tell the waters where to stop and the stars to shine at your command. You are the one true God, and there is none like you. We praise you for your plan to save sinners from death, to redeem them as your children. We are those redeemed by you, and we praise you. Give us an increase of faith and trust in you, for you alone are worthy of it. Amen.